0: thank you for joining us. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with App point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD5. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. In the first four episodes of our six-part series on COPD, our experts discussed diagnosing patients and the gold recommendations, dual therapy, triple therapy, and the role of inhaled corticosteroids. And now, in this fifth episode, our experts discuss the lung attack, the recognition, treatment, and management of COPD exacerbations. Do you use the gold recommendations to review, assess, and adjust your patients' therapies? I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Jill Ohar, Professor of Pulmonary Critical Care Allergy and Immunologic Medicine at Wake Forest University School of Medicine, and by Dr. Barbara Jahn, Adjunct Professor of Family and Community Health at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Jahn is also the Chief Clinical Officer of the COPD Foundation in Washington, DC.
1: Dr. Ohar will begin our discussion. Hello and welcome to our discussion on COPD today we're going to talk about how to identify COPD exacerbations. I'm Jill Ohar, and I'm joined by Dr. Barbara Yawn, a known primary care physician. So, Barbara,
2: how you doing today? I'm doing well, Jill. Uh, I think we, maybe we have to uh, comment that you're kind of a known pulmonologist, too. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, My picture's in the post office, you know, under most wanted.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I think that it might be uh, in many patients, uh, you know, Facebook as most wanted also. So, you know, I think both of us have many years of experience of uh, trying to improve the lives of people living with COPD.
1: Absolutely. So exacerbations are really an important phenomena that occur in patients who have COPD. They're associated with worsening lung function. They're associated with worsening of comorbidities They're responsible for about 75% of the 50 billion or so that Americans spend on the care of COPD annually. However, patients often fail to recognize an exacerbation and therefore fail to seek uh, any therapy from their physicians. So uh, tell me, what do you tell your patients about how to recognize an exacerbation?
2: Well, I tell them, uh, let's look at what your usual day to day living with COPD is because we know that it does vary a little bit, and some of those variations are, are kind of within normal limits, so to speak. But if they have a sense that, you know, this is kind of the limit of what usually happens, but now I have more cough more sputum, my sputum changes color, I have more fatigue, I'm having more shortness of breath. Maybe they hear wheezing that they don't usually hear, although that tends to be, I think, more uncommon in in the patients I talk with. But any of those changes uh, that last not just an hour or two, but they're lasting a day or even the second day, I want to know about that because I think something is happening with their COPD. I think it is likely this is the onset of an exacerbation.
1: I think you're right. I think patients feel, though, I'm just going to gut this out and it'll go away eventually. And they don't realize that there is specific therapy for an exacerbation in, in the form of um, systemic steroids for five days antibiotics for five days, and then also changing those inhaled medicines from from a meter dose or dry powder format uh, into a nebulized format. And we have done that literally for decades, moved a patient to a nebulizer during an exacerbation, but really without any scientific underpinnings. And as we are learning more and more about peak inspiratory flow and its ability to make patients be able to use their inhalers correctly or not, and how there are vast fluctuations in peak inspiratory flow surrounding an exacerbation. It's terribly important that patients know when they start to feel poorly, I need to call my doctor so that these kinds of changes, the oral steroids, the oral antibiotics, and the change of the medications to a nebulizer format can be initiated quickly so that maybe we can avoid a hospitalization. Yeah, I want to point out that in
2: primary care, we do two of those three things. We rarely automatically change the patient to nebulizer. Now, some of our patients do use nebulizers, but a lot of them don't use nebulizers. And they couldn't change the medication quickly to a nebulizer because they don't have those medications at home. So this is a difference. But I want to take a couple of steps back uh, because one of the problems we have in primary care is failure to appreciate exacerbations. We still, if you and I, you know, I'm doing research in primary care, I, you know, I've looked at thousands of charts of people with COPD, and unfortunately, we still don't always label these as exacerbations, either with our patients and their families or in the medical record, we say, oh yeah, they've got a bad cold with their COPD. They've got bronchitis with their COPD. No, they have an exacerbation. And I like to compare exacerbations to a lung attack like you would a heart attack. This is an important serious event. This is not something you just ignore. You wouldn't tell a patient with chest pain, oh yeah, I think you're just having a little chest pain. You're going to evacuate them for an MI and decide what you do based on that evaluation. I think the same kind of mindset needs to be there for exacerbations. Uh, And so yes, Please tell them when to call you, who to call, how to call, what do they do on weekends or nights, Uh, who do they call if you're not available, and what do they tell them, what should they expect to have happen. Um, You know, we can do this with the COPD action plan, and I, I really like using those because I can't always remember all the things I should tell the patient, and this helps Put it all together for me, and I can give it to the patient for them to take home. Uh, so with an exacerbation, yes, I'm going to use the oral steroids uh, most of the time. The antibiotics, uh, I know there's still a little bit of discussion should everybody with an outpatient exacerbation get antibiotics, um, and I'll be interested in, in your comment. Uh, if, The oral steroids take care of it. They don't have a change in the color of their sputum. They don't have any fever. I might not add the antibiotics. I might just do oral steroids. But I have to admit, I rarely switch to nebulizers because most of my patients don't have all their drugs. Usually, if they have a nebulizer, they only have their rescue medicine available to them at home in nebulized form.
1: Absolutely. I think in terms of antibiotics, we've really had to come to a a realization that with the overuse of antibiotics, uh, we've put our older and frailer patients uh, at risk for C. difficile. And so being a little more judicious about that, so uh, an exacerbation that entails more sputum or a change in sputum Uh, would be more likely for me to uh, initiate uh, an antibiotic. Furthermore, um, for inpatients, uh, when patients clearly have a viral infection um, that has precipitated uh, this exacerbation, um, I will rapidly stop those antibiotics that have been started on admission um, because it's not necessary. Um, I think... Perhaps one of the ways that patients or maybe physicians in conjunction with patients can uh, help identify, is this really an exacerbation? Comes back to our friend, the CAT, the COPD assessment test. Uh, Because clearly if you've got a change in that score by four or more, something's probably going on that's different in this patient Do you use the cat ever to to help firm up the diagnosis of an exacerbation?
2: Yes, I do. And I think it can be helpful when, you know, you have a question or when the patient is a little earlier in the the, uh, evolution of, their exacerbation which I would love to have them call me earlier instead of later. Uh, So yes, I do use the cat. And one of the things you mentioned is important, again, a differentiation between primary care and specialty care. You talked about hospitalizations. Well, as primary care practices changed, Uh, You know, yes, I used to take care of people in the hospital uh, for exacerbations and lots of other things. Now, almost all primary care physicians and the other clinicians, the NPs and the PAs, if they're doing outpatient care, are not seeing patients in the hospital. And one of the things this does is it sort of blinds us in a way to how big and an important event like an exacerbation really is in the patient's lives because we only talk to the people and see them when they're having an exacerbation that can be managed in an outpatient. And as you pointed out, a lot of times uh, the patients just kind of gut it out and don't even tell us. But we don't necessarily appreciate the tremendous impact that these exacerbations have, yes, on healthcare costs, healthcare utilization, uh, decrease in lung function, but the increased rate of decline of quality of life that doesn't go away in three or four days or even a week, and also the increase in mortality, both acutely with a hospitalization and the increased five-year mortality after they've had an exacerbation. So I think that the removing us from hospital care, whether that's good or bad, is a totally different story, but it has given us kind of a skewed view of exacerbations. And I think we need you to help us remember this is really a big deal.
1: It certainly is. I, I think you've already brought up the example of the myocardial infarction or the heart attack. And the, the actual statistics on hospitalized patients with an acute exacerbation of COPD is that one in four of them will be dead in a year. Now, that, that's a pretty startling fact. One in four patients hospitalized for an acute exacerbation for COPD will be dead in a year. If that doesn't serve as a wake-up call, nothing will. So I think when patients tend to trivialize their COPD, tend to trivialize their cigarette smoking, tend to trivialize their exacerbations, this is one fact that that needs to be emphasized over and over again. Furthermore, there's some real important uh, nuggets of information nestled into those facts, and that is, number one, that the, the most important predictor for a COPD exacerbation is the history of a previous exacerbation. That means if you've had one exacerbation, your chances of having a second is much greater. Furthermore, exacerbations tend to cluster. They tend to occur within the six weeks after the last exacerbation. And furthermore, they tend to increase in frequency after an exacerbation. So patients actually get into a vortex where they have more and more and more exacerbations that end up culminating in their death. Finally, uh, COPD is a disorder that's characterized by a disproportionately high prevalence of common comorbidities. As a matter of fact, it's so important, it's part of the definition in gold of COPD. So that means if you have 10 smokers and say four of those 10 smokers have COPD. The smokers with COPD will much more likely have both smoking related and smoking unrelated comorbidities in a much greater uh, prevalence. So what are we talking about? We're talking about heart disease, coronary artery disease, peripheral vascular disease, cerebral vascular disease, diabetes, the metabolic syndrome, osteoporosis, lung cancer, and renal uh, failure or renal insufficiency. So all of these, as well as depression and anxiety, all of these disorders are disproportionately more common in smokers with COPD than smokers without. And when you get an exacerbation of COPD, not only does your COPD exacerbate, but so does your comorbidity. And the comorbidities more often than not are what bring people back into the hospital after an hospitalization for COPD exacerbation.
2: Absolutely, I mean, all you have to think of is, for a second, you have somebody who has heart failure, we used to call it congestive heart failure, now we just call it heart failure, or they have diabetes, or both, and you give them a pretty good blast of oral or systemic steroids. Well, guess what you've just done to their potential for fluid retention. You've increased it. What have you done uh, for the management and control of their blood glucose? Uh, Well, it's not gonna be well controlled. Uh, So you really have to think about all their comorbidities. We also know that uh, high doses of steroid may aggravate depressive symptoms and may aggravate anxiety because it makes you feel twitchy and jumpy and all kinds of things. So it is really important uh, when we see a patient back Uh, We'd love to see them within three or four days, but usually within the first seven to ten days. Please check all of those other comorbidities and how they are doing post-hospitalization. Because as you pointed out, that may be the reason they end up back in the hospital a week, ten days, two weeks later. All of those really are important, and it's our role as primary care physicians uh, to try to help manage all of those. We may not be the only person managing them, but we're often the one that sees across multiple morbidities what's going on and what other attention any one of them may require.
1: You're absolutely right, Barbara, and in and, and reality, uh, the Center for uh, Medicare uh, Services uh, recognizes the importance uh, of that, that rapid follow-up after a hospital discharge, and as a result, um, they offer a premium to clinicians. Um, there is an approximately $100 additional Uh, charge that can be made for a uh, a transitional care visit um, if it's within seven days. And I think the premium is around $70 if that visit is made uh, within 14 days of discharge. Um, And there are some categories that need to be met. That is that there has to have been somebody from your office that called the patient within um, two to three days after discharge to see how they were doing. It has to be documented in the note. You have to address those comorbidities, as you've uh, pointed out. Um, and, and then begin to, to recommend um, such therapies as, as pulmonary rehab, smoking cessation, and address those issues as well, as well as the ancillary services. Does this patient need? Uh, visiting nurse? Do they need physical therapy? Do they need Meals on Wheels? What other services do they need? And this all came out of a, a New England Journal article uh, by Jenks several years ago that showed that there is a substantial reduction in 30-day readmission rate if a patient is seen within the first seven days after discharge. Um, this then gives us a, an important um, opportunity to talk about immunizations, which Um, can occur um, when patients are seen for an exacerbation, whether it's an inpatient or an outpatient uh, exacerbation. Um, It's important to keep up with immunizations because they reduce the frequency of these kinds of infections that precipitate an exacerbation. But um, we routinely in our hospital do not leave people, leave the hospital without their pneumococcal vaccine and influenza vaccine unless they give us written permission to refuse it. Um, how about you? How do you feel about immunizations?
2: Oh, immunizations are crucial. They're one of the most effective things that we have available. And certainly if uh, they aren't up to date and when they leave the hospital, I like the fact that uh, the hospital is going to provide those for them. and. So that's important. But I think you make a good point. If someone comes in for an exacerbation, uh, we should doubly check their immunizations. In primary care, most of us review immunizations pretty much on every visit. But if we're not and we're a little lax sometimes with an exacerbation, that is a crucial thing to do to make sure we are getting them fully immunized, and if you need to have them come back for a a second immunization, please schedule it then. Don't just say, well, come back whenever. Um, Make sure you make the schedule. But the other point I want to make is that we know that uh, after a heart attack, for example, people are much more willing to get very serious about smoking cessation, about changing their diet, about changing their lifestyle. I think we need to use that and realize that after exacerbation, especially hospitalization for a COPD exacerbation, this is a great time for smoking cessation to be a really big push, to really have pulmonary rehab be a big push. Somebody who before said, ah, I'm not so sure about this, pointing out that pulmonary rehab can decrease their risk for the next exacerbation, I think we have a much better chance getting the patients excited about some of those things that before they were not really willing to consider. So use this opportunity as a positive opportunity in addition to pointing out we don't want this to happen again.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think it's important. It's a teaching moment for patients and, um, not Not only can pulmonary rehab improve quality of life and um, improve muscle strength and, and uh, ability to perform the activities of daily living, uh, pulmonary rehab has actually been shown to decrease mortality, so there are two types of things that you can interventions you can do in that post exacerbation period while you have a captive audience um, to talk to them about reduction of mortality. And one is, uh, is smoking cessation, and the other is pulmonary rehab. So real critical uh, points there.
2: Well, I do want to add, Jill, also that pulmonary rehab is, is one of the best therapies we have for the anxiety and depression yeah. that is very, very common. Uh, we know that medical therapy for depression in people with COPD it's not really all that effective. A lot of them are not real interested in going to cognitive behavioural therapy or they're uncomfortable with it, but the benefit they get from pulmonary rehab is extended to their anxiety and depression also. So, You know, I love pulmonary rehab. Uh, I wish it was available everywhere, but it is one of the most effective therapies that has pretty much no side effects. Uh, I'm I'm hard-pressed to think about the side effects of pulmonary rehab uh, done properly. Uh, So please, let's use something that is so effective and has so little or almost no risk for our patients.
1: So in the post-exacerbation period, it is an opportunity to employ a strategy that's new to the gold management cycle. Uh, In this, physicians, clinicians are asked to review exacerbations and symptoms, uh, assess inhaler technique, um, and then adjust both pharmacologic therapy as well as potentially the devices within which... Uh, they uh, are available to the patient. Barbara, tell us: Do you do you um, adhere to this review, assess, and adjust and repeat uh, treatment uh, plan? And if so, how do you put it into your practice?
2: Well, I hope I do. I hope it do for every single chronic disease. I mean, this is not. And that's what's really nice about it for primary care. This is not applicable just to COPD. It is to asthma, to diabetes, to heart disease, to hypertension, to everything else we think about. You really do need to assess, you know, evaluate, reassess, adjust. It needs to keep going in a circle. And so when someone comes in and things are not doing well, or it's post-hospital. I do think, as you pointed out, we need to think about things like their inhaler technique. We need to think about barriers to adherence. Uh, do they still not understand what medicines they're taking and why they're taking and what they should expect from those medications? Because we know that about 60% of people with COPD management do not persist in taking it over a long period. So we need to really address this. But I also like to address triggers. We know person smoking is a trigger, but you wanna check who else they're living with or around or where do they do social activities and is there are there a bunch of people there smoking and is that a trigger for them? Uh, some people with COPD I believe also have some seasonal triggers, whether it's cold air that can make things worse, or maybe they have aero allergens that are triggers. All of those things need to be assessed, and they can actually be done quite quickly. I get pushback from my primary care colleagues saying, oh yeah, you just listed 10 things. How am I supposed to do that in five minutes? Well, you can uh, very quickly because you also have your MA helping you, asking about what kind of problems do you have taking your medicines? I never say, you do take them, don't you? Because they always say, oh yeah, yeah, doc, I'm taking everything. You know, you turn it around and we know you're on several medicines. Can you tell us the problems you have or concerns you have? Uh, show me what medicine you take for what. Um, that can be done really very quickly. The cat can help with that uh, as far as symptoms and knowing those. So. All of those things are really, really important to assess. And then realize that I may need to make changes, either in the medication, in my educational approach, in the support they get from their family, or in the actual medications that I am prescribing with them and they agree are appropriate.
1: These are really important insights, Barbara. And I know that many of us, especially when we feel time pressured, you want to just add a new medicine, you know, add a new molecule. And, and we really don't think through the, the barriers uh, that patients face, uh, the cost, um, their perception of efficacy of a drug, um, whether they're using a device correctly, which impacts greatly on their uh, personal um, opinion of whether this drug helps or not. And then furthermore, if they don't believe that a a drug is efficacious, that impacts their adherence, which you've already highlighted is is the non-adherence to to drugs is quite high. I think just giving patients that permission to complain about uh, things. I I often tell patients, um, you may get to the pharmacy counter uh, and this drug may not be covered in your insurance program and the pharmacist may tell you this is gonna be $6 million. And there is an alternate, a very similar molecule that we can prescribe for you, but if you don't call us and tell us, we don't know. But patients are embarrassed, and and so they just leave, they don't pick up the script, they don't use it, et cetera. So these have been really, really good insights. Uh, Barbara, I wanna really thank you for um, joining me today I think probably the take-home message is the importance uh, of a lung attack and uh, the importance of patients to understand exactly how significant an exacerbation is, how important it is to, to contact their, their primary care physician to get an early intervention. And the importance of that as a sentinel event to cause the clinician to reassess and begin to think, geez, is this a patient that maybe, is this one of those patients because uh, of frequent exacerbations, do I know what their eosinophil count is? Is this somebody who would benefit from an inhaled glucocorticoid? Even though I know there's a pneumonia signal associated with that, is the benefit of that inhaled glucocorticoid greater than the potential of that pneumonia signal because this patient has a high eosinophil count or has frequent exacerbations. So um, thanks a lot for joining me, and I, and I thank the audience as well.
2: Thank you. I enjoyed it, Jill.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD5 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. And be sure to join us for the sixth and final episode of this series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD six, where Dr. Ohar will again be joined by Dr. Yan to discuss how the COVID 19 pandemic is impacting COPD patient care. You can also find a listing of all the episodes in this podcast series at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash COPD.